Assessing Christian Use of the Enneagram on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. And once again, on the podcast, I am visited by Dr. Ren Cherry. Ren is the Director of Finances and Donor Relations here at ACBC, serving on our staff. He's also an adjunct professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He received his doctoral degree, his PhD from Southwestern Seminary not too long ago. He wrote actually on this subject, the Enneagram, and he has a forthcoming book that will be out of that research, that doctoral research, and it's called Enneagram Theology, Is It Christian? And I'm excited that you guys actually get a full month of Wren. We get to enjoy Wren in the office every day, and you guys are just getting a, a wonderful taste of what life is like with Ren. And uh, we love Ren in the office. He's married to, to Terry, uh, and we get to enjoy fellowship with her as well. He has two children, uh, Jack and Carly. And Ren, I'm so grateful that you're here again for a fourth week. And, and what I want us to do this week is, is um, let's see if we can set, set the stage and turn the corner. We've talked a lot about background, the history of the Enneagram, where it came from, helping people to understand Mystic Roots. And let me just say, if you've not uh, listened to the three previous podcasts, we, we've done some of this background work, this history work. And if you've listened to that, you're coming to to this podcast and you're, you're probably wondering, okay, like, I, I hear what you guys are saying. I understand what you're saying, but but I'm not sure. Like, how do we, how are Christians using this in practice? How are they actually implementing this? And so I, I would expect that some listeners, you know, who currently use the Enneagram and even maybe propagate the use of it with others, um, have listened maybe to the last three weeks of the podcast, and, and you said things like, you know, I really didn't know who Richard Rohr was. I had no idea his influence. Maybe you say something like, I'm not a panentheist, right, like Rohr is. I don't believe the same way that, that Rohr does about that. You know, I, I don't propagate the things that Rohr and some of the other authors do. I don't believe God is in everything. You might say, well, of, of course, I don't think multiple incarnations have taken place. I don't agree with his theological disposition um, relative to those things. You might even find yourself right now saying, yeah, that, that's ridiculous. Like, we would never think like that. And, and you find yourself distancing um, from Rohr, his thinking, some of the authors that he mentored in evangelicalism, maybe distancing yourself from theology. You know, I, I would just simply ask, can, can we be honest and ask yourself, why? Why are we distancing ourselves from him? What's the need to do that? Especially if his thinking and his theology is so intertwined in the modern way that we understand uh, the uses of the Enneagram. And you may say you want to distance theologically speaking, but I think that takes really the whole system of the Enneagram apart because it, it really can't be disconnected, at least in my view, from from the foundation of, of his theological disposition and how he sees insight, how he understands personality types and how he understands, you know, how we improve as the self or, or how we have certain vices and that sort of thing. Why is it that we would need to build a caveat when we use the Enneagram? Why would it be that we need to, to maybe add some sort of warning label? Yeah, we use this, but we only use it for this way. We don't use it in certain ways. So what I want to do, Ren, is if we can turn the corner and really start talking about how do we assess even the uses of it or the practices of it. And I'm not just talking about secularly. I think 
I think this system makes total sense for a secular mind to employ as a personality typology or a way of understanding leadership and that sort of thing. I want us to assess sort of the Christian uses of it, and, and there, there are many. And, and somebody might respond and say, well, I use this sort of thing because I think it I think it works. I think it's effective, right? What are some of the things we might respond to with that sort of pragmatic response? Well, we just use it because we think it works. Okay, so some listeners, like you said, may find themselves promoting the Enneagram's effectiveness, uh, but they need to distance themselves from Enneagram theology. So they acknowledge it as a useful secular tool, and they're certainly free to do that. But at, at the point that you make that claim, it is certainly fair to discuss what does effectiveness look like. We know that we live in an era of so-called evidence-based treatments and practices. You know, science is real, right? Uh, or or, or I, I would say real science is real. Mm-hmm. So if you're divorced from the Enneagram theology, it's a valid question to ask, is there some type of scientific support for this typology called the Enneagram? Are there peer-reviewed studies, articles, and some type of support for the effectiveness of this system? Up to this point, I could only find a study from 2015, and we're going to include that citation in the podcast notes. It's in the Journal of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology that responded to the overwhelming number of evidence-based practices in psychology, specifically for assessing and treating, in this case, children and adolescents. So they enlisted this particular study, 139 PhD-level clinicians uh, with an average of over 26 years of clinical experience. They used a Delphi poll, uh, a one-to-five scale to rate various assessment tools. And here's what's interesting. In order to determine which ones are discredited. So in other words, this study set out in the crowded world of so-called evidence-based assessments, they set out to determine which ones should be, in their words, eradicated, eliminated from use, to clear the table, to clear the landscape. So whether or not you agree with secular psychology and its practices, that's a separate issue. You'd be hard-pressed to argue against the collective experience of these people who did the rating. Okay, so time out. If I understand what you're saying right, and this is sort of an interesting turn of events here, Ren, and, and we're saying, okay, Let's talk about the practices of it. Let's talk about how, quote unquote, effective we think it is. If that's where we want to shift the discussion, if that's the category that we want to go into, uh, let's let's do that. Let's assess that. So you're looking at this study. It's interesting because you're seeing this sort of family feud or this what I would consider to be an intramural squabble, right, where you have you know some uh, in the secular world uh, propagating this idea, thinking it's you know this new wave of wonderful information. And then we want to look at the scientific uses of it. And so you have this sort of meta-analysis that, that happened um, in assessing different typologies or different assessment tools uh, for their validity. And that's an appropriate thing to do scientifically. Um, but now I'm curious as to, okay, you set this up. What did the study actually show in this intramural squabble? Again, the citation is attached uh, in the podcast notes. Out of 36 assessments that this study surveyed, After the first round, the Enneagram ranked as the second most discredited assessment tool. After the second round, it tied for last. So I want to be clear. A peer-reviewed study in a psychological journal ranked the Enneagram tied for dead last out of 36 
assessments. And so these experienced clinicians would not collectively agree that the Enneagram is an effective assessment tool. Again, I point you to that study. All right. So, so we have that you know, understanding. We want to put it categorically. Well, I use it because I think it's effective. I think it, I think it works. And um, you're demonstrating that, that the, the studies that have been done on it so far have disagreed with that. And that it's not something that's repeatable, in part because it's a self-assessment, in part because, you know, we, we view the things that we want to view sometimes through these types of lenses. It gives us a framework and we feel comfortable with frameworks and we like to adopt language that makes us sound like we can put things into proper categories. But but what I want to do is, is if we can, switch gears. I want to discuss how this is used in counseling. I mean, this is a podcast specifically about counseling and how this might be employed in counseling. And so I, I want us to talk about how this is used in counseling and maybe talk about some other areas as well. But, but let's talk about first, how is the Enneagram uh, used in the counseling setting? Well, the Enneagram has become popular with counselors in couples and family counseling for sure. It's often used really as a communication tool. So the idea is that counselees can use this to become more aware of their own tendencies, habits, blind spots, as well as perhaps their spouse or other family members. It gives counselees a common new language to help them understand themselves and others. And what this knowledge of self and others leads to is a set of prescribed ways of responding to others based on their number and your number. Okay, so if I'm understanding, let's let's pause for a second and grasp what you said so far. Are we saying that these numbers are sort of uh, determinative or we're describing these numbers as being determinative or um, of who we are? Yeah, I mean, I so I looked the word determinative up in the Webster's Dictionary. It's, it says it means literally it's having the power to define, qualify, or direct. Something that is determinative defines who you are. Mm-hmm. And again, I would note the brilliance and really the marketability of these personality assessments that the person himself fills out. You see, you take the test. Mm-hmm. So even in a mainstream publication, uh, for instance, Christianity Today, uh, in their January, February 2021 issue, so just a couple months ago, they call into question the validity of the Enneagram. And again, we'll, we'll put that citation for that article in the podcast notes as well. But the article uses two real-life counseling examples to make a very interesting point. So first, a young couple recognizes that the Enneagram is a helpful tool for them. It's helped them, quote, give grace to ourselves and to each other. You'll hear this quite often in Christian circles that imbibe the Enneagram. A second real-life couple who was married for over 20 years was in therapy and discovered that their Enneagram types, really from Don Rizzo's book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, uh, they discovered their Enneagram types, but really after further study of their respective types and tendencies, they also discovered that they were not the right person for each other. So they divorced shortly after their 24th anniversary. Now, the point I'm making is not that the Enneagram leads to divorce. Surely not everyone that uses this typology will have a marriage that ends in divorce. That's not the point. The point made in Christianity Today article, and I quote here, is that there is no doubt that both couples viewed the Enneagram personality tool as determinative. That is, both couples accepted the reliability and the validity of an Enneagram test as defining who they are. That is determinism by definition. It carries with it the idea that I have no choice in who I am. Uh, It crafts a lie 
that I have no real choice in how I act. And in this sense, it propagates a false narrative about human personality. In fact, as it applies to my wife, kids, even you, Dale, I can convince myself that I already know how you will respond. I know your number and you know mine. Man, so that's an interesting turn of events. A couple of things, even from that little segment there, is um, it's interesting that, that such a popular periodical like Christianity Today would raise concerns about this typology. I find that very interesting. The stories that you gave, certainly they're anecdotal, but but I think they are expressive. And um, they, they do illustrate some of the points that we're trying to make of, of what I would say are warnings or cautions about what this um, this system sort of breeds into us in the way that we think. So, all right, let's move on and think about maybe another area that we see the evidence of the Enneagram's popularity, uh, particularly among evangelicals, because that's, that's our circle um, with Christians. The ways in which it's making influence in ministry decisions associated with certain maybe individual team members. You know, it seems that the corporate model of doing church, at least here in North America in our context, has opened the door really to an emphasis on utilizing organizational structures and tools you know, particularly that claim to increase the effectiveness, and this is a key term, the effectiveness and efficiency of ministry. And so church effectiveness and then ministry decisions sometimes are often built upon or even volunteer teams are decided based upon these Enneagram typologies or, or the influence of it. And, and maybe even hiring and firing decisions are built upon this whole system as well. Yeah, so we've seen that Ian Crone his Enneagram works are very popular among church leadership ministry leaders like Andy Stanley, Kerry Newhoff. Those men have mass appeal, very wide influence. They actively promote using the Enneagram as a way to establish and maintain effective, high-functioning ministry teams. Many times church planting teams are, are church startups. But what must we say to those claims? Where exactly does the Holy Spirit fit into the efficiency or the effectiveness discussion? But what we do see in Matthew 16, after Peter's own confession of Jesus as the Christ, it is Jesus who confirms who builds the church. He does. And in verse 18 of that same chapter, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we see ministry leaders sometimes get caught up in the latest, coolest thing that everybody else is doing to make themselves a better leader and communicate better with the people who work for them. But they can sometimes run the risk of stealing the role of the Holy Spirit by replacing him, he is a person, he's fully God, with a tool that examines uh, the personalities of the people potentially on their team. And so to apply the concept of determinism in the form of applying the Enneagram to a ministry decision, again, with a volunteer or a paid employee, your number and its associated characteristics, and they call them different things, different authors call these things passions, virtues, vices, etc. But once you accept a label and an associated set of behaviors, let's say in order to be accepted for a ministry position or a paid position, you accept that you will, in fact, behave in a prescribed manner to some degree. In other words, you buy into a system that says people can predict how you will respond, but also into a system that can set and expects that this is how you will continue to respond and act in the future. 
This is deterministic, Dale. I mean, that, that's really interesting because I mean, a lot of folks have imbibed this idea, this this fad, and we're not decrying here the desire to have strong teams, ministry teams. Of course, that's a healthy desire. What we're arguing and saying here is that we have to be careful not to chase after certain fads that we think manufactures that for us outside of the way that the Bible describes. The Bible makes very clear that as we pursue uh, Christ, unity begins to happen, even on ministry teams. And um, what I what I fear is happening here, as you mentioned, we're circumventing the work of the Holy Spirit. We're circumventing um, what He does in production as He conforms us to the Im- image of Christ. We're sort of removing uh, our trust in Christ to build His church as He works in and through us, as we um, propagate His words, as we live His character, and so on and so forth. It, yeah, it becomes sort of a way to to manufacture or move quickly through the process of assessing different things, um, dismissing the validity of the Spirit to do this work by the Word in our own hearts. So what is it that you say to someone who, this is a popular question. I've received this question in classes. I've received this question via email. You know, so what is it that you say to somebody who's asked to take the Enneagram test in order to join a ministry team or to be a part of some sort of, you know, volunteer work, or, or maybe they're using it, you know, in church ministries now to assess you as, you know, coming on pastoral staff or or something like that. I mean, how are we to help people think through this process when they're asked to, to do something like this? Okay, so let me just first get out there that it's quite common you might come across uh, a saying of sorts that personality tests like the Enneagram are like x-ray machines or MRIs that expose hidden non-physical things in a person, and it implies that the Enneagram itself can reveal spiritual things that the Bible and the Holy Spirit cannot. So when you hear such a statement, when you are asked to take such a test, be reminded that a man-made system is effectively being elevated above Scripture. So the role of invisible discerner of the thoughts, intentions, motivations of the heart, that role is reserved for God alone, specifically the person of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that he authored, per Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. So I, I want to give some context for listeners that may be, uh, they've been approached to take a test as part of a ministry decision, whether they're going to be allowed to be on a team or not, perhaps even a hiring decision. I want to give context here with Romans 1. So Paul leaves the Romans and us with the warning here. The warning's found in verse 18. It's against suppressing the truth about God, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Paul goes on and further warns the Romans and us, again, giving approval against giving approval to those who suppress the truth. In verse 32, he writes specifically, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I ask you to consider if it's requested of you to take a test, you should question the motivations of that ministry leader. It could be a pastor. It could be a Christian institution wanting to hire you. What do they think that test gives the collective body of Christ that Scripture does not? What wisdom goes with that system that the Lord Himself has not provided in the work of Scripture. Yeah, and and I think this is really important because we we, we sort of get down to the nitty gritty here, where you know it, it's important for us. You know, lots of people are using it, and you feel pressure maybe to, to 
in order to get a job that you need to take these things. And, and I, I think, Ren, what you're saying is, is wise. Just find out, inquire, ask, you know, what are the ways that we're u- using this? I'm a little concerned about Enneagram itself, some of its history, its background, even its theological dispositions, how we would use it. And I think some for good reason. And I think that will be helpful discussion between you and a potential employer or you and a potential church or whatever. I, th- I think it will be helpful discussion, you know, so that you see where, where they are. They see maybe where you are in, in a little bit different light. And, and I think that would be helpful to, to flesh out. You know what you're getting into when you ask those questions. And I think those are valid questions, in part because of some of the issues, Ren, that you just raised with you know, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. It, it does seem to be some sort of Gnostic approach where we say the Holy Spirit is actually using this. It's only a tool. It's only a tool. That's all it is, right? But, but we're actually, in evangelical circles, we're saying the Holy Spirit's using this tool. And I get really nervous about that because... It seems as though the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, not not some human-made tool, especially one that comes from such a theological background that's, I believe, anti the God of the Bible. And so I think we have to be cautious here. And it's a replacement, really, of the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Word in the hearts of people. And so I think it's at least worthy questions to ask. Now, we can't say that there's no passage in the Bible that says, you know, don't do this or don't do that. So, so I'm not trying to be legalistic about it, but what I think is important is it, it, it's at least valid to raise the question because of some of the concerns that you've mentioned with the determinative nature, the way the system is utilized, how people see each other, even in, you know, that type of fellowship in, in vices and virtues and passions that we think people have instead of assessing that by the scriptures and allowing the scripture to be the measure of the man, as Ephesians 4 tells us, but we're using this, you know, assessment tool on the outside, and it, it casts our gaze away from Christ and onto a system, onto a tool that doesn't promote the glory of Christ, nor, in my mind, the work of the Holy Spirit. And it raises the question about revelation outside the Bible. Something is being revealed about us by the Holy Spirit, the, the story goes, outside of the Scripture, and it begins to raise the question of you know revelation. So these are at least some things to to talk about and and assess. And I want you guys to think through the practice of it. Our whole point is not to say like you're completely wicked and evil if you use these things. That, that's not really the idea at all. What what we're trying to do is just say don't walk into something like this blindly. It, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to find out what's going on. Uh, I do think this tool promotes an unbiblical worldview. I think it promotes an unbiblical ideal. It promotes unbiblical thinking and patterns of life, and wrong assessments, and so on. So I do think there's reason to be cautious when we think about the uses, particularly in the Christian circles, about this tool called the Enneagram. So, Ren, I'll, I'll give you maybe just a second to give uh, a couple of final thoughts. I know we've gone long this time, but a couple of final thoughts here. Yeah, I would ask, you know, whatever happened to spending time together as brothers and sisters using Scripture, the very words of the Holy Spirit, to show us what needs to be put off and put on in our own lives, and also lovingly uh, in the lives of our brothers and sisters. I would just encourage listeners, you know, when the Lord wrote to us, don't forsake the gathering together with others, that, that's not only for corporate worship, but also spending time with others and understanding their heart condition face-to-face with Scripture. Let me just warn listeners that we are all sinfully drawn to understand complicated systems with complex explanations and vernacular that you yourself can learn and eventually explain to others. So beware when you come across any system that is understandable only by a select group. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. And what I love about this is our goal is just, can we you know, not, not give lip service that we're turning to Christ? Let's turn to him and his word and trust 
the work of the Holy Spirit. And I know that doesn't always happen as fast as we wish it would, right? Um, but I think we have to be patient to trust the work of the, the Spirit in our life as we turn our hearts back to His Word and back to Christ. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, I do want to make sure that you notice the, the show notes that we have this week. A couple of important things that, that Ren mentioned, a couple of studies, one particularly from Christianity Today, another from a psychological journal that did a, a sort of a, a mass assessment of 36 different assessment tools. And I want to just make a quick comment that, that we are not against science, but what we're trying to say in this mode describing typologies is we're okay in looking at science and what science is demonstrating even from these you know high level researchers is that it's it's not effective it it actually ranks last after several you know concerning tests like the rorschach inkblot test and so on i mean uh, we have to be cautious and 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 be wise even to pay attention to the way the secular world uses it and and not give in to pragmatism as we've been guilty of in the church, um, just because, quote unquote, we think it works and that becomes our, our mode. Um, so I, I just want to raise that as a point of caution. Pay attention to those things in the show notes. Go check out the things that, that Ram was mentioning here. I, I think it'll be helpful for you to see how even the secular world is assessing this and how the secular world might view us as Christians trying to employ these things when they don't even see it as, as something that's valid. And, and I want to remind you, we, we've done some diligent work the last three weeks in the podcast as well. Uh, go back and listen to those things and maybe a host of other podcasts that we've done in the past on various subjects that I think you'll find helpful. And you can find out about those podcasts and lots of other resources at biblicalcounseling.com.